Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Take a licking. <laughs> there is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you. Just call for Super Chicken. Welcome to the Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer web radio show brought to you by Combox Feeds. My name is Andy Schneider, but most know me as the Chicken Whisperer, author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, author of Chicken Fact or Chicken Poop, National Spokesperson for the USDA Biosecurity for Birds Program and Editor-in-Chief of Chicken Whisperer Magazine. Each week, I welcome experts in their field to share their knowledge about different topics, including backyard poultry, show poultry, heritage poultry, farming, and living a self-sufficient lifestyle. Be sure to visit us online at chickenwhisperer.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, and subscribe to the totally free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer Magazine. Once again, I would like to thank all of you for tuning in today to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. At Kalmbach Feeds, our layer pellets and crumbles are all natural, antibiotic-free, with no animal byproducts. Formulated just for laying hens, our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious, tasty, strong-shelled eggs. From our family to yours, feed your hens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Find a dealer at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H, feeds.com. Or order your layer pellets and crumples today on amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of The Chicken Whisperer. Hey, it's The Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at gqfradio.com. That's gqfradio.com. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. 
It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Sweet PDZ has been keeping horse stalls ammonia-free and healthy for nearly 33 years. However, ammonia is ammonia, regardless of the species producing it. Therefore, it will do the same great job in your chicken coops and brooders. Sweet PDZ safeguards flock health by neutralizing and eliminating harmful levels of ammonia and odors. Safe and effective moisture absorption. All-natural, non-toxic, premium-grade zeolite mineral. Contains no masking scents or chemical perfumes. Safe and beneficial to dispose with waste on compost and gardens. Learn more at SweetPDZ.com. That's SweetPDZ.com. Metzer Farms is now hatching and shipping the premier egg layer. This girl is consistently laying jumbo eggs with a higher nutrient density and lower water content than your eggs now. She is an extremely hardy bird and the most heat and cold tolerant egg layer available, allowing for year-round outdoor production. An eggshell unmatched in sturdiness and thickness, making cracks a thing of the past. Increase your health and double your egg profits. Of course, we're talking about ducks. Duck eggs are revered by chefs for their succulent flavor and by bakers for being the better baking egg. Learn more about this extraordinary duck, the Golden 300, or any of our other 35-plus breeds of ducks and geese at MetzerFarms.com and order your next flock from us. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. All righty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. If you're a new listener, we thank you very much for joining us. And I hope you enjoy what you hear on the program today. To all of our regular listeners, thank you very much for your support over the years, and we thank you for tuning in as well. Uh, We have a great show lined up for you today. Today we've got Dr. Maurice Pateski. He's going to be discussing illness and disease to watch out for uh, while raising meat birds. And this is kind of a a theme right now, both on our Facebook page uh, and on the podcast, because uh, I guess it was uh, last week, we ran a, a big contest with Cackle Hatchery, and I was going to get um, 10 or 11 uh, Cornish cross meat birds to raise out and document, and then a lucky winner was going to get uh, 10 or 11. She actually ended up getting 12 uh, meat birds Cornish cross from Cackle Hatchery as the prize, and she also got a couple of bags of sweet PDZ coop refresher that she can use both in her brooder and in the coop, because we know these birds are going to poop a lot, and they drink a lot, and they uh, uh, eat a lot as well. But um, so, so she won that contest. She received her birds. Uh, they shipped out on Monday. They hatched on Monday, shipped out from Cackle Hatchery on Monday. We got them yesterday on Wednesday, and it's really been great. It's been received very well on our Facebook. We go do Facebook Live, 
And yesterday we, we got the birds and we set up our brooder. We showed the brooder we were using, which is the GQF Universal Brooder Box. Tons of awesome comments on that because, well, it is an awesome brooder, I have to say. Um, and then um, using the Sweet PDZ down in the poop tray, just the whole nine yards. And we, we dipped their beaks in the water. We dipped them in the beak. We got them situated. Um, and, and we weighed the birds. Actually, we weighed three out of the 11. I've got 11. So we weighed three out of 11. I said that's close enough to a third of them, I guess. I guess I could weigh, them, weigh four of them. But I think three is enough because this is a good average. So I weighed the birds. And then same thing that we did, um, same thing we did today. Hang on one second. Okay, sorry about that little break. Um, and then we went out there today about the same time, 24 hours later. And, again, we observed how much uh, feed they ate, uh, how much water they drank, how much they pooped, and then we weighed them again. And we're going to do that every single day. I, in my mind, I'm thinking about seven weeks they'll be ready to go and get processed. It could be up to eight. Uh, could be as early as six, but I'm thinking seven or eight in this in the kind of the backyard setting, a smaller scale setting. Um, and we weighed them today. Yesterday, their weight was 1.3 ounces and 1.4 ounces. And then today, they just about doubled in, in weight. It was 2.1, 2.2, and 2.3. So well, not quite doubled their weight, uh, depending on if you want to use the 2.2 or the 2.3 based on 1.4. Now they're 2.3. But not, not quite doubled their weight in a 24-hour period. So. Um, but but it's great. We're doing the Facebook Live thing. People are really enjoying it. They're tuning in. They're looking for our videos now, and uh, it's just really good. I also did one yesterday on, um, I think it was called, uh, Stop It With The Predator Attacks Already, and we talked about that, about the frustrations of there just being too many predator attacks posted on these Facebook forums. There's just too many, and it just boils down to folks not doing the proper research to figure out how to keep their coop and run predator-proof, and number two, not being willing to to spend the money to do it. And it's going to take money at the end of the day. Uh, and um, so, so we talked a little bit about that. We, we were very down to earth about it, saying, look, even if you do what you think, even if you think you've got, there's still going to be occasional predator attack. And so, you know, it's, nothing is perfect, so don't get me wrong, but the number of predator attacks that are mentioned on Facebook is just abnormal. There just should not be this many, and it boils down to them just not doing research and not willing to spend the money to get that predator-proof coop. And then and then, then everybody's like, oh, if you had a predator attack, well, then, then you need to buy this uh, coyote pee and put around your coop and run. Oh, you need to buy these flashing lights and put around your run. You need to buy this. You need to buy that. Well, why don't you spend that money and fortify your coop a little better and your run a little better and then it doesn't matter if there's 500 more raccoons out there. You don't have to worry about it because you spent that money instead of on coyote pee to sprinkle around your coop. Who knows how often you have to rebuy that. Put that money into fortifying the coop better um, and your run better, and then you don't have to worry about it and then respending that money. So we talked a little bit about that uh, in that in that Facebook Live comment. Uh, we talked about um, the, 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 the focus on, on the, on the uh, uh, predator I think instead of fixing the problem, they'll, they'll say it's a raccoon. They'll say things like, oh, well, I think it's a raccoon or I saw it's a raccoon. Uh, can I trap it? Can I shoot it? Can I have someone else trap it? If I trap it, what can I do with it? Is it illegal to shoot it? Is it legal to shoot it? If I shoot it, then what do I do with it? All these questions about this silly raccoon. And then, and then you know, how, how, what do I do about the other raccoons if they're more out in the woods? And, and instead of focusing on the silly raccoon, 
let's focus on how they got in and killed your chickens. And, and let's fix that problem. And then the other 500 raccoons that are in the woods really won't matter at that point because you've done what you needed to do to lock that hole. And then so um, we, we talked about all of that yesterday. And uh, the day before, we talked a little bit about um, what was it? Uh, anyway, you can go to our Facebook page and uh, take a look. So the Facebook Live videos are really doing well. People are really enjoying them. And we're going to be running a weekly contest. So it looks like uh, the contest I'm going to tell you about right now, uh, this week, that you still have uh, time to participate and, and enter this contest. Um, right now it's going on. It ends tonight at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So about midnight tonight on the Eastern Coast. That's when the contest will end. And, and it's sponsored by strombergschickens.com. And that's strombergs with an S, chickens with an S.com. And this is the way you enter. You head over there to their website, strombergschickens.com. And you go into their online store. And I want you to look through it. And I want you to pick something that you would use on a $50 gift certificate. Because okay, you're going to have, if you win, a $50 gift certificate to strombergschickens.com, and they're going to send you a really cool retro design uh, poultry-keeping T-shirt. It's really cool. You can see that in the store right there, too. But the way to enter is you go to their website, you go into their online store, you pick an item that you would most likely use that $50 gift certificate on, and then somewhere on our Facebook page, either under one of the video comments or in the regular post comments in the comments section, type that item number of what you spend that gift certificate on, and then a short description of that. Like, oh, it's item number P6945, and I would love to have this GQF brooder. That's what I think I'll get if I win the 50R gift certificate. That's how you enter. It's very simple. We'll randomly pick a winner tonight after midnight, and then tomorrow when we go live, afternoon, one of, well, probably about 2 o'clock, one, between 1 and 2 p.m. Eastern, we'll go live and update all the chicks in the brooder, and then that's when we'll announce the winner the $50 gift certificate and that really cool retro t-shirt from our friends over at strombergschickens.com. So uh, I wanted to make that announcement to you. You can enter very easily and uh, you might win and follow us on Facebook daily as we go through raising these meat birds. And today's show, which we're going to get to right now, illness and disease to watch for when raising meat birds. Now, another quick reminder, last week's show, we had Dr. Um, Bridget McRae on, and she gave us for the whole show just kind of a good, well-rounded 101 how to raise meat birds. So you can listen to that uh, episode. It's in the archives already, and then you can follow us along daily as we update our meat bird raising. And then, of course, today, we've got Dr. Maurice Pateski, um, Dr. of Veterinary Medicine, and he's going to be talking a little bit of poultry, uh, and he's going to be talking about illness and disease to watch for when raising meat birds. And there are several of them uh, specific that we'll, we'll want to watch for, even on the small scale. So we're going right to the phone lines right now, and we'll bring on Dr. Maurice Pateski, and we'll let him get started. Hey, Maurice, thanks for joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me, Andy. It's good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we raised meat birds before, and I thought this would be a really good experience. And I was quite frankly surprised, um, I shouldn't really have been, at the interest from folks really wanting to follow us along with this. And I think it comes from, uh, I saw this about a, uh, eight, nine years ago in the Atlanta area. I had a big club in Atlanta. It still exists. And we did a on-site um, display on, on, on processing, calling and and processing uh, meat birds. And we had a huge turnout, somewhere between 75, 100 people. And I, I, I interviewed some of them while we were there. Why are you here? And, and back then, you know, the, 
pet chicken was kind of king. Uh, but even then, I had a lot of folks, and, I, and we see this now um, when we talk to folks about the meat, raising meat birds. They're like, well, you know, right now I don't think I could ever do this. You know, my birds are pets. They're all named, but I'm here to learn. I'm here to see what it, in details. I'm trying to see if I could maybe do it, or I'm here to gain the knowledge if I choose to do it one day. And then we had people that said, you know what, I've had, I have pet chickens. And I've got a dozen pet chickens, and they're my pets, and they're named. But I'm really looking at getting a separate coop, separate meat birds, maybe eight or ten in my backyard. And I'm going to, because I'm already, you know, providing great uh, local food for my family through the eggs for my hens and their pets. But now I can also, um, I'm ready to, to jump uh, off the fence. I'm ready to do this and do small-scale meat birds so I can additionally provide some for my family. And I feel like, you know, knowing where my food comes from. So so we, we're seeing that today. Folks are, I've never done this or I'm interested in doing this. And I've got my pet chickens, but I really think, I thought I'd never be able to do this. <laughs> but now I'm really thinking about doing this and I'm interested in doing that. So it, we're seeing every year more and more people. And it's really interesting that they thought they could never do this, would never be interested in this, especially when they got so involved with their pet chickens, Dr. Marie uh, Petusky, but now they're they're really starting to see, you know, maybe I will try this. I mean, yeah, it'll probably be hard for me to call them, da, 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 because I have my pet chickens and all. But if I just name them names like you know stew pot, teriyaki, and you know fried, you know, so people kind of deal with that in, in a fun way. And then they sometimes they just don't name them. They try not to get attached to them, but they're still really interested in it. So I know there's some things today. Our topic, illness and disease, specifically with meat birds, uh, because again, especially these fast growers like the Cornish Cross. Once these are done, uh, Doc, we're going to be doing. We'll, we'll, we'll rest for about a week or so. And then we'll order maybe a slower growing, maybe even like a dual purpose, like a barred rock. And we'll see the difference in growing them out, how long it takes, how much more expensive due to the feed, and how long it takes to get them. Or we may do a slower growing, like maybe a Freedom Ranger or maybe just a slower grower uh, bred meat bird. And then we'll do the comparison. We may do this three times. We may do a, 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 the Cornish Cross and then a slower growing specific meat type bird and then maybe a dual purpose like uh, maybe a barred rock and we'll compare all of our notes then how long it takes and cost factor and feed factor and the whole nine yards but um, everybody seems to be enjoying it and this show is is perfect timing so we'd like to hear what you've got to say and teach us about things to watch out for uh, with the with raising these fast growing meat birds yeah, well, thanks for having me again, and I, I think you hit upon the the most important uh, most important thing that I think people need to think about when they are um, eventually going to process their birds is uh, definitely don't name your birds because it, it definitely gets a little harder <laughs> <laughs> to do uh, um, to slaughter and to process birds. Um, but it is to your point, um, it's it's getting much more popular. So um, you know, I work with um, large commercial producers, and I work with small free range and pastured and other small producers. And then I, I work with a lot of backyarders and uh, mm-hmm. we've done some workshops for some beginning farmer um, free range and pastured poultry producers. And, and I have gotten quite a bit of, of interest in um, having those workshops available for backyarders too, because they're, they're really interested in uh, processing and doing it correctly. Um, and, you know, as our layer birds, you know, layer birds are still for for backyarders and I and I'd say also um for some of the small commercial producers that are uh selling their eggs at farmers markets but also have crops that they sell um the egg side of the yeah. equation is still really um kind of uh, disproportionately kind of um um 
the majority of of the the egg product, the majority of the poultry products that these farmers will sell. Um, but you are seeing kind of a, a, an increased interest, and and I think one of the interesting challenges is now you're getting a lot of layer birds that are spent hens, they're two years old, for example, <laughs> roughly. They're no longer that much. They're no longer productive. And you're getting a lot of questions on, like, well, how do we process these birds? And and, and I'd say in general, layer birds are a little more difficult to process. The meat's a little tougher. Uh, there's not as much meat on on those birds because they're they're layers. They've they kind of been bred for eggs, not for um, their carcasses. Um, and there's a few more things that you'll start seeing in those birds. So the the biggest thing off the top of my head that you'll typically see is, especially in some of these two-year-old birds. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll definitely see, um, you know, maybe 5% or a few less than that, a few less percentile than that of, uh, of tumors that are typically, um, what we call leukosis tumors. Um, and those are kind of interesting. Um, and it, it, it can be a little, um, it, it's something, especially as a commercial producer, even a small commercial producer, uh, something to really be aware of because you obviously don't want to sell, um, a bird that has a tumor in it for, um, any, for aesthetic reasons at the, at the minimum, um, and also, um, once a um, tumor has, has, has invaded an organ, um, the legal thing to do, and I would agree with this from um, a food safety perspective, the legal thing to do is to condemn the carcass. So we'll talk about all that um, a, a little later. But it is, like to your point, it is really interesting how, how popular uh, this stuff is, is, is getting and um, it's an interesting challenge for a lot of backyarders because, uh, first and foremost, uh, a lot of the backyard community, um, uh, probably 99% of them have mixed-age flocks. Um, so it can be real challenging to figure out, you know, what age you're going to um, start processing birds. And, and having mixed-age flocks is is not ideal from a disease control perspective. Um, so younger birds obviously aren't as exposed to as many diseases as older birds, but if you mix them together, um, they're kind of all kind of sharing their diseases. And um, that can be an interesting observation when you get to um, processing birds um, because as you start processing them, you'll start seeing um, all kinds of different different changes in the birds. And, and I think the, the hard thing for backyarders to do um, or people that are new at this um, in the – you know, pastured and free-range kind of world, um, is understanding what normal is. You can't understand what an abnormal air sac looks like. You mm-hmm. can't understand what an abnormal liver looks like until you know what a normal liver looks like, until you know what a normal air sac looks like. And that primarily will just come with time. You'll see over and over again, because the majority of the birds that you process, um, you know, you, you'll get you'll get kind of in a habit of like knowing what certain organs uh, and tissues look like, and then all of a sudden you'll see something that looks a little different or feels a little different, um, and that's when, you know, you want to start um, kind of using that pattern recognition that you've gained over the last, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 birds or, or whatever you've processed. Would, would you um, would you see any significant would you see any significant difference in, say, one of these rapid growth broilers like the Cornish Cross and maybe just a, a barred rock when you go to process pretty much generally when you when you seeing what normal is, would would you see any type of uh, difference in that in just the changing of, of a breed? Um, not necessarily. So in, in the rapidly growing birds, um, you do see, and, and, and we have this problem in the commercial industry, you will see a few more fractures um, because mm-hmm. those birds are growing so quickly because the genetics has evolved uh, and the selection process has evolved so quickly that the rapidly growing birds 
um, will have uh, problems not only with fractures, but they'll have um, problems with their heart um, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, dealing mm-hmm. with, um, you know, kind of um, um, mortality associated with that because they're just growing so quickly uh, versus the slow-growing Maybe. breeds. Uh, which don't typically have those kind of fractures. And I know there's been a big push um, on the retail side from, uh, you know, the one that comes to mind the most is Whole Foods, for example, uh, which is insisting, Mm -hmm. I think, by 2025 that all their um, um, broiler meat comes from, quote-unquote, slow-growing breeds. Mm -hmm. The the disadvantage to that, obviously, is that the feed conversion ratio, the amount of feed that Mm -hmm. is required to grow uh, muscle is, is much higher in those breeds. Um, but there are some potential welfare and even some flavor um, benefits to um, growing those slow-growing, uh, slow-growing breeds as far as um, versus the fast-growing breeds. The other thing that's interesting about, just real briefly, about uh, depending on you know people that are listening to the show in different climates and different environments, uh, if you are in a um, uh, at high altitude, uh, fast-growing breeds are probably not going to be your best friend. Um, slow-growing breeds are going to be much better. So the fast-growing breeds will typically have higher mortality um, in part because of um, how quickly they're growing and their heart um, having difficulty um, maintaining um, um, a blood flow to the entire carcass. It, it gets even harder to do at high elevation, as you can imagine. Um, so you really need to think about your environment, especially for the backyarders and folks that are, are where their birds are, are spending um, a significant amount of time outdoors. It's really hard to control in higher in hotter climates. Also, it can be very hard to, to um, um, for certain types of husbandry practices. It's very hard to control the environment, to control humidity, uh, to control temperature. Uh, obviously, um, oxygen at, at high altitudes is something you can't really control at all um, for for poultry. So those are all things to kind of consider as you're deciding between the, the fast growing and the slow growing um, breeds. Okay, interesting, awesome. It did, yep. And I'm guessing the hard issue, maybe you have a, what you see just, I know the, the fast growth has that would have its disadvantages, but um, being the paramedic in me, would it be maybe an, when you're when you're processing them, an, alar- an enlarged heart with these faster growers? Yes, you can see that. Sometimes you won't see anything. To, it, it, it's more subtle. I mean, it's something a pathologist would would probably see a little um, a little more commonly than um, you know someone else who's, who's not seeing these things all the time. But you would see in a large heart. Um, you can see you know what's called hypertrophy. Um, sometimes you you can't see that unless it's 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 a histopathological observation also. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a fancy way of saying you you stick those heart cells on on a slide. But you you would see, Mm -hmm. over time, you could see something that that does look, you're like, well, that heart looks a little bigger. Now, when you look at the pathologist, Mm -hmm. what they'll do is they'll they'll just weigh the hearts, um, and they'll look at the heart relative to the entire body weight, and that's how they can tell one of the kind of gross ways um, they can tell Mm -hmm. um, whether there's um, an enlarged heart or not. But you can also, like I mentioned before, also use um, kind of histopathology to look at that. Um, Okay. So one thing I really wanted to, to kind of mention before is, um, you know, we want to obviously raise our birds, and we always talk about this, raising our birds and using good biosecurity, using good management, um, because if we do that, then our condemnation rates are going to be lower. And we'll talk about what that means uh, in, in a minute. And, and really what we want to focus on when we're thinking about how we're raising our birds is is all the things we talk about every time we talk about disease or management, it's really about good husbandry practices. 
Um, one of the things I really want to stress, especially in the commercial world, that, that I think um, backyarders have a, have a distinct advantage about is uh, one of the ways that, that disease really gets spread is via poor ventilation. So in the wintertime, in the commercial poultry world, it's really hard to ventilate properly some of these barns um, because you have a lot, a lot of cool air from outside and you want to um, have those birds um, at a warmer temperature. So ventilation can be a real challenge in the wintertime. That's usually when we get a lot of respiratory diseases. Um, so one of the things we really want to focus on is, is having proper ventilation. And, and I think when we talk about husbandry and management, and especially in backyard and, and or small commercial flocks, we don't always talk about ventilation and how important it is. Um, but especially if we're trying to raise uh, healthy birds um, with mm -hmm. low condemnation rates where we don't have to uh, trim any um, uh, uh, any kind of diseased tissue out of uh, the animal, uh, out of the chicken. Um, it, ventilation is really going to be something really important to think about. Um, and, and the other thing I wanted to kind of mention is, is having, and again, this is more of a commercial poultry industry, but it's just something we need to consider, is having the proper density. Um, we don't want too many birds um, in too small of a space. Um, that's a way for birds to get stressed. And when they do get stressed, um, that's, again, a way for um, birds to become uh, more susceptible to infectious diseases. Um, and we'll talk about some of the other things, but just real briefly, uh, one of the real challenges is, is catching birds. Um, uh, if you have 5, 10, 15, 20, uh, 50 birds, uh, catching those birds can be a little challenging, uh, as we all know. I mean, birds are quick. Um, and, and, and one of the real problems is that if we don't handle them correctly when we catch them, um, we can cause some bruising and some fractures. Um, and that can, can lead to, you know, condemnations and stress and um, all those things combined, you know, are, are going to lead to a carcass that we're not, um, it's not um, aesthetically, you know, pleasing at the minimum. Um, and then the other thing, when we catch the birds, we want to avoid pileups. Um, so I'm sure as many of us have noticed, um, when we do go into our coops, if we move too quickly, um, those birds will just kind of go, they're, they're, they're prey species, so they're all going to kind of pile up in a corner. And unfortunately, they, they're, they're kind of flight or flight response is, is, uh -huh. is greater than their ability to survive sometimes. And those pileups, the, the birds can suffocate at the bottom and you can have uh, fractures and all these other issues. So it's really important when you're, when you're collecting your birds um, before you um, start um, your processing, it's really important to, to collect the birds with care and to be real cautious. So if you go, grab them above the hawk, for example, you want to do that real gently as gently as possible because, again, you can cause some real specific um, problems and bruising, which can lead to downgrades and can lead to things that you're like, well, do we really want to eat this bird um, based upon what we're, what we're seeing here? And you always want to err. I think we're lucky um, in the U.S. and that we can err on the side of caution. Uh, I'll work with other people around the world, and, and if there's meat, they're, they're going to cook it no matter what. Um, but I think we, we can err on the side of caution when it comes to looking at a carcass and deciding whether we really want to eat that or not. And I think the other issue is that sometimes, and this is probably the most common and, and most frustrating part, I think, for, for folks, is that the reality is if a bird has salmonella or campylobacter um, on it, mm -hmm. Um, we can't look at the muscle or the carcass as a whole and say, yep, that bird has salmonella. Um, that bird's got campylobacter, jejuni. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Um, so we really need to always be cautious. You can't just look at that uh, chicken and say, well, that, that looks like a healthy chicken. Well, sure, it looks like a healthy chicken, but the, the reality is that there is a very 
um, a relatively high likelihood that there's salmonella um, associated with that bird. If you look at the the data, so if you if you buy chicken at the store, uh, farmers market, whatever it be, I'd say about 20% of those of those carcasses have some salmonella on them. Um, it's higher when those birds are actually on the farm, um, but with all the cleaning and disinfection steps, we can reduce that a little. And on the Campylobacter side, again, if you look at the data, you're probably looking at about 5% of, of the birds um, at the retail level that have Campylobacter associated with them. Which ones? You know, if you look at two, um, you know, if, if you've got chicken thighs or breast meat or whole chicken, which ones of those are ground chicken? Which ones of those have it and don't have it? Unfortunately, we just can't look at it and tell. Um, but it's really important to realize that because I think we all – uh, the visual is so important, and, and the, um, but the reality is, is that, that that's not everything, um, and that um, there are tests you can do, um, but the reality is if you, if you do a good job of um, preventing cross-contamination in your pro- when you're processing and cooking um, and cleaning, um, that even if the bird did have salmonella or campylobacter, it wouldn't matter at all because you did everything right. And that leads to one issue is that, you know, you will have birds, especially in mixed-age flocks, you would anticipate maybe having two birds that are infected with salmonella, maybe another bird that's not. Um, so when you are doing your processing, it's really important to not have cross-contamination. So especially if you're doing small flocks, um, I would highly recommend uh, re uh, your your scissors and your... Um, uh, any knives that you're using um, mm-hmm. to clean and disinfect those uh, from bird to bird. If you're doing 100 birds, yeah, sure, that's going to be a little harder to do, um, and it's probably not realistic. But if you're doing two or four or five, that, that to me that's a, a reasonable thing to consider, and it's a great way uh, to kind of break that uh, potential transmission of disease um, once you've started uh, eviscerating um, those carcasses. It's something that I typically don't see people do when I read about it online. Okay. Um, Excellent point. So one other thing I wanted to point out, too, is that when we um, are about to process birds, and you tell me if this is, I don't know if if this got covered previously, but it's something that I've noticed Mm -hmm. people don't always um, do. But when you're about to process birds, before you process them, you want to take away their feed uh, for between 8 and 12 hours. Um, before you process okay. them. And and the whole reason we do that is that if their guts are empty, um, then there is less potential uh, for intestinal contents, which can have a lot of uh, bacteria in them, for those intestinal contents to um, uh, contaminate the, the meat itself. I would say in general, if you do nick the gut, so when you are um, um, processing your birds and, and getting all the meat out and getting rid of the parts that you don't want to eat, um, if you do nick the gut, um, especially as you nick the gut south of the stomach, um, those are, are reasons to condemn your carcass. Um, so, again, in the U.S., we probably want to err on the side of caution. Um, it's just not worth it to get you know, salmonella and campylobacter and E. coli and these type of things. Um, could you obviously you know, kind of kill the chicken or, or excuse me, uh, cook the chicken? Um, to kill all that bacteria, absolutely. Um, but but you have high mm-hmm. loads of bacteria, and now you're bringing this into your kitchen, and, and, and you have to worry about kind of cross-contamination issues. But that, that 8 to 12-hour rule is really important, um, and it has been shown to reduce the microbial, uh, the potential for, for, for cross-contamination 
um, as those birds go through go through processing. So it's an important thing to kind of think about. The one thing I would stress, though, is always give the birds water. Um, so if you don't give birds mm-hmm. water, they mm-hmm. will get stressed. Um, and if you if you restrict their feed for too long, they'll also get stressed. Um, and when they get stressed, they will um, they'll kind of fight over the feed, and that's how you can get fractures and things like that. So mm-hmm. when you're looking at your birds and you're processing them, it's really important to see, like, how many fractures are you seeing um, because that can reflect on, you know, poor um, or unideal uh, husbandry and management practices. It could also reflect on what you did, you know, 8 to 12 hours um, before you started processing um, the birds. So it's really important to offer food, to, to take away food 8 hours before you're processing, but don't let those feeders uh, run empty because what you can get is you can get broken bones, you can get bruising, um, and, and you can get bruising from, you know, now, now there's two ways that you can get bruising. Get bruising from grabbing the birds, um, for example, above the hawk during live catching, or you can get this bruising from uh, poor management because these birds were kind of fighting uh, each other because you didn't have enough water eight hours before or two hours before, uh, for example. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out, so most of the data that we have is really from the commercial world. Um, so we kind of use mm-hmm. that. It's apples and oranges a little, but we, we kind of use that as, a, as kind of a ballpark um, kind of idea about how well we're doing. Um, so the reality is is that, you know, in the commercial world between, and this is seasonal because we talked about the winter and some of the um, issues with wintertime, but 1% to 2% of the birds will be condemned in, 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 the, um, in the commercial world. And they'll be condemned for, you know, four or five different reasons. Um, you know, one reason, and this, is, this goes to kind of management, is one of the primary reasons, what we call air sacculitis. So for those of you that, that kind of know a little about um, bird uh, physiology, uh, birds have lungs, but they also have these things called air sacs. Um, and it's very, very thin, um, see-through uh, sheet of tissue uh, in their chest cavity um, that you can, um, where uh, air exchange goes on. And it's kind of glistening and clear. Um, and, and, but if they have a, an infection in there, which is typically from E. coli, then those air sacs are, are thickened. Um, they can even use, you know, using a pathology term, um, those air sacs can actually become kind of like uh, cheesy, um, kind of white and, and opaque. Um, and if you see that, um, that's a very common reason to have condemnation um, because those air sacs now have, you know, they're kind of loaded with E. coli. And that E. coli can be in several other places. Um, so one of the things you want to start looking for, because this is very common and E. coli is ubiquitous in the environment, is, is those, what do those air sacs look like? And I think, you know, the big thing that you want to, that you want to look at is like, okay, if you're seeing a lot of air sacculitis, for example, uh, if you're seizing that kind of cheesy, um, kind of exudate or material, um, in the lung area, um, then you have to start thinking, okay, what are we doing on our, on our commercial, on our, excuse me, on our live uh, side that we're not doing right. Why are we having so many, so much E. coli? Um, and that goes to maybe the ventilation issue that we talked about a, l- a little earlier, or that goes to, to the density issue that we talked about a little earlier. So the nice part about doing um, poultry processing, treating the birds as, as broilers at some point, is that now you're becoming, first of all, you're getting the meat, which I think is great, it closes the loop and all those type of things, which is, I think, a really great direction for um, kind of people 
um, that are interested in that kind of self-sufficient poultry and, and using poultry as part of that, that lifestyle. I think that's a great um, kind of way to close that loop. But it also gives you a way to kind of quality control your husbandry and management practices. So if you're seeing, you know, over 5 10 15% of your birds that have, you know, this kind of air sacculitis thing, well, then you're doing something incorrectly, and this gives you a way to kind of check yourself uh, as far as uh, quality control. And we don't really get that opportunity too, too often. This is what pathologists do when we submit birds to diagnostic labs, and we say our birds are sick and we don't know what, what's going on, and then they'll say you have air sacculitis. So now we're, we're kind of doing that ourselves a little here, and I think, I think there's, some, um, there's some value in that. Um, the next thing that you'll notice, um, you will notice some tumors, um, especially in layer birds. Um, and we, we did talk a little about this. So these leukosis tumors are, are usually caused by a couple different viruses, um, including Merrick's disease. Um, so Merrick's disease doesn't kill all birds, as, as, as we kind of all know. Um, it depends on the virus, depends on the genetics of the bird, depends on when the bird was infected. Um, but you can have other, uh, there's an avian leukosis virus, um, which can also cause these kind of tumors inside the birds. And then typically those tumors happen in older birds. Um, and again, this is one of those things you, that, that you won't notice any clinical signs, um, but you will see these kind of white gray um, balls that are you know, maybe an inch or two in diameter, and you'll see them associated with all kinds of organs, livers, spleens, ovaries. Um, and when you see them, it's really an interesting thing. It's like a big mass. Um, it'll definitely look abnormal. So if, you, if you've opened up five birds and the sixth bird, um, you see that mass as you're taking out all the organs. Um, that's definitely, you know, that's an easy thing um, to start getting good at looking for, and it's a great kind of pathological. You know, you're becoming your own pathologist at that point. You, you, that, that's most likely an avian leukosis tumor. And then the general rule of thumb in, um, you know, the food inspection world is that if you do see a tumor and it's, re and, it's, and it's connected to an organ, at that point you would condemn the whole carcass. Now, if we are in other parts of the world and, you know, everything else looks fine, the muscle looks good, and we're just going to eat the muscle, obviously that's a different calculation there. Um, but in our part of the world, uh, my preference um, in that scenario is to condemn the whole carcass um, because um, you've got, you know, even though these cancers are not zoonotic, it's not going from, the cancer is not going from the chicken to the human, um, it, it probably does affect, you know, some of the quality of the carcass. Um, that bird is diseased. Even though it's not a disease, it's zoonotic. My my own worldview for you know living in this country would be to to not uh, consume that um, that animal. Mm -hmm. um, but those mm -hmm. tumors you will see, and it's it's kind of an interesting observation. And I think the real nice part is as you do this with, um, especially as you're doing it with kids and family members, it's really interesting to see, you know, how good your management was. Um, the air sacculitis is a reflection of management for the most part. The leukosis is more of an age thing. Um, you know, there are some vaccines for some of those tumors, but uh, for the most part, as layers get older, you do see some of those, those tumors kind of popping up, and it's just an interesting observation more than anything else. Um, and then the other thing that we'll see very often in the commercial world is what we call septicemia, which is just a fancy term for a blood infection. Um, and you'll see, this is again something you can see, um, you'll see kind of a bluish or purplish discoloration of the skin or the mucous membranes. Um, and, and that just, um, the birds will look um, emaciated, they'll look really thin, um, the birds will look anemic, so uh, there's not very much, um, you know, they, they, they look pale, um, and, and those are all signs that we're having a blood infection. Again, typically uh, E. coli, but can be other bacteria and viruses, 
So that's another reason because now it's systemic again. It's, it's inside the entire blood system. It's circulating throughout all the organs and the muscle. Um, that's another reason that we would that we would not eat the bird. And again, septicemia again is kind of this E. coli. So why are we getting E. coli? Well, that goes down to management. It goes to the density issues. It goes to the ventilation issues. It goes. Are we managing our litter properly, for example? So litter is this you know really amazing material that most backyarders for the most part don't use, unfortunately. Um, but it's a great way to um, absorb um, uh, ammonia, for example, because birds produce a lot of ammonia, and uh, ammonia is not good. It causes stress in addition to causing corneal ulcers. Um, and the other nice part about litter, I think what we sometimes forget, is that um, the litter absorbs all this, this, this moisture, um, but it can also release moisture. Um, so if we have a really dry day, it's actually, um, it's basically like a, um, uh, almost like a sponge, and it can release that moisture back into the environment and, and vice versa. So if you have humidity problems, for example, all these things that are related to stress, uh, litter can really help with that, and litter can also, as we mentioned, um, reduce ammonia emissions, which again is related to stress. And when birds or animals or any animal gets stressed, they become more susceptible to disease. Um, so understanding the kind of that uh, relationship um, between kind of good husbandry um, and what the birds look like when we're uh, when we're processing them is is probably um, an important thing to to, to recognize. And then the most the other most common things so we talked about this septicemia or this blood infection. We talked about air sacculitis, um, which is very common. And we talked about these leukosis tumors, which are somewhat common. The other thing, and this kind of depends on a lot of things, are fractures. Um, so uh, you will see fractures um, in, in your birds for a lot of different types of reasons. Um, so sometimes you'll see a fracture um, because it happened during uh, processing. So uh, for those of you that are familiar with the pluckers um, that are mm-hmm. commonly used to um, help us get all the feathers out of the birds, those pluckers are pretty violent. Um, and if um, those pluckers are, if you keep your plucker on for too long, if you don't have the um, proper number of birds in the plucker, um, those are all reasons why you can start ha- seeing fractures. Um, when you do see fractures, you, you can kind of look at the fracture itself and tell if it happened at the plucker or um, if it happened kind of a long time ago. Um, and there's ways to kind of tell that, but usually uh, a fresh fracture will have nice sharp edges um, and an older fracture um, will have kind of blunter edges. It might have some signs that it was trying to repair itself. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's one of those things you can kind of train your eye to kind of uh, eventually eventually see. Uh, the other reason you can have flat fractures, though, also where you'd have a fresh fracture is during the um, when you're actually um, – uh, handling the birds. So if, if you're if you're if you're when you're when you're picking up the birds, and if you have rough handling when you're putting them, um, let's say in a crate before you decide before you start processing them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that rough handling can contribute to that. And also nutrition. So if you're not uh, if you're on a birds are and I've seen this in the commercial world, it does happen uh, where birds aren't getting the right amount of calcium and phosphorus. Um, you'll start seeing in the processing plant uh, a higher level of fractures than you normally would see, and then you start asking yourself, okay, is this due to handling? Is this due to nutrition? Um, so you need to think about, like, okay, are we giving the birds, you know, proper uh, a proper diet? For example, if they're layer birds, uh, are they getting, you know, 5% calcium, for example, as they're supposed to get? Um, and, and one thing to also look for is bruising. 
Um, so just kind of as a, as a Jeff general rule of thumb, uh, if the bruise is localized and it's red and purple, um, so the red and purple color implies that it happened just prior to slaughter. Um, and then if you do see a, a, a bruise kind of in the commercial world, what we would do is we would trim that bruise out um, because of the aesthetics there. Um, however, if you do see um, a bruise and it's, it's more of a green um, that indicates that it's, it's a much older bruise. Um, and those ones are typically condemned because we don't have as much of an understanding about why we're getting that bruise. Are we getting bruising, for example, because, you know, liver is not working properly? Um, is there something else going on? So, again, you know, in this country, well, we try to err on the side of caution when it comes to, to eating um, all kinds of foods. Um, so that, that, that would be my recommendation to be, to be cautious of that. Um, and the other thing that we want to think about, um, again, going back to the kind of the litter concept, are uh, breast, breast blisters. Um, so that we see that in the commercial world, and it's just a slight thickening of the tissue underneath the skin uh, of the keel. Um, sometimes it's, it's, if you feel it, it's like a little uh, jelly-like, uh, almost like sack right at the breastbone at the keel. Um, and, and you might also see foot pad lesions also um, with, with those breast blisters. And sometimes what that can mean is that you have wet litter um, and or high ammonia levels. So sometimes what I've seen in the, in the backyard world is not so much wet litter, but just a wet ground because they don't have litter. Um, and when it gets really wet like that, um, you start getting these breast blisters. That's a hard word to say fast. And um, also um, some of these foot pad lesions. And the, and the lesions are like these uh, like little focal uh, almost like black dots on their feet. If you can't remove them, it's it's a it's a foot lesion. If you can't remove them, it's just a chunk of dirt that's on their foot. Um, but those are typically just from um, um, improper kind of husbandry. Um, and breast, we can you can you can actually trim those out or cut those out. Um, but those are signs again that you're not. It's a kind of bruise basically, and it's a sign that you're not managing. Uh, you're having some kind of management issue. Quick question, and then I'm going to yep. go to a quick break. But my question, when you're talking about the different fractures um, on the, because you hear a lot of bad information that people just knocking the fast growers, um, and it's, but like the um, with the weight and the and the rapid growth with say the Cornish cross uh, and fractures, uh, would their weight and their rapid weight gain, and I guess overall weight, have anything? I, I know you just didn't mention anything about leg fractures. So is, mm -hmm. is the fact? I know they get they just get so heavy they just want to sit around. But mm -hmm. would 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 they would they be heavy enough uh, to show any type of fractures yes. in in the legs? Okay. Yes, absolutely. So the the faster growing breeds, um, one of the unintended consequences, if, if, if you will, is that we do see more uh, fractures in those breeds. We also see uh, more what's called woody breast, which um, right. is hard to describe, but it's, it's uh, like a textural difference. So um, for those of you that buy like uh, breast meat at the market, um, you'll every once in a while you'll run into, you'll be looking, you'll, you'll be looking, either preparing the chicken or when you eat it, um, there's definitely a different texture to woody breast. There's not really a lot of understanding about why we have woody breast. Um, it is a problem in, in those fast-growing breeds, though, so it, it's thought to be related to that. Um, but no one exactly understands the, um, you know, the can mechanism you, of what's actually happening there. Can you identify that, too? I've read a little bit about that, and, and, I've, and I may be totally misunderstanding the articles that I've got it mixed up. But is that you see, like, is it white streaks 
through through the breast muscle that is that sometimes determine the the woody breast because I've read some articles about that interesting and it was a, there's, I see a lot in the commercial industry come through about do we really need to worry about this do we need to care about this what causes this and, and or is that am I am I thinking about something else but with the white lines or the white tissue uh, going through the breast is one way to maybe identify that if you're buying chicken from the store or am I just making that up. <laughs> I, you know, I I've, I don't 100% know if, if that, so I'm not going to say yes or no to what you're saying. I've seen it before when I purchased it, and it, yeah. it when I it hasn't been it hasn't looked like that to me, um, but there's definitely a texture feeling. Like when you hold it in your hand, you're like, wow, that mm-hmm. feels mm-hmm. definitely different. Um, yeah. And it's a real problem. It's it's definitely in the fast growing breeds, and I think a lot of um, the large commercial producers that use the fast-growing breeds are are trying to address it because it's it's a significant problem. Gotcha. Okay, I'm going to go to a break really quick, and uh, we're talking with, if you're just tuning in, Dr. Maurice Pateski. We're talking about illness and disease to watch for when raising meat birds because we're doing that. We're documenting that. We've got a contest winner last week who's doing that, and um, so this is perfect timing for all of us and all of you that might be interested in doing so, and we'll return with more on this topic right after this short break. So stay with us. When you need an incubator, think Brincy, the incubation specialists. Brincy has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. How would you like to sleep in on the weekends without having to get up early to let your chickens out or not have to rush home after eating dinner to shut your chickens in for the night? And who's had the unfortunate surprise that a raccoon, possum, or fox got to your chickens because you forgot to close the coop. Well, your days of worrying have come to an end. Introducing the Chicken Guard Automatic Chicken Coop Door Opener. Working off either the timer or light sensor, Chicken Guard automatically opens your coop door in the morning to let the girls out and shuts it at night to keep them safe. Tried and trusted by over 40,000 users worldwide. Buy Chicken Guard online at chickenguardian.com or your local farm and feed store. That's chickenguardian.com. With more than 25 years in the business, Eggland's Best is known for its highest standards in taste, nutrition, freshness, and quality. And now the brand is bringing its expertise to backyard farmers nationwide. Introducing Eggland's Best Backyard Chicken Feed. Feeding Eggland's Best Chicken Feed to backyard chickens will result in superior eggs with six times more vitamin D, 25% less saturated fat, more than double the omega-3s, 10 times more vitamin E, and more than double the amount of vitamin B12 than ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best Chicken Feed comes in several varieties for layers and chicks, and they even offer an organic variety. Eggland's Best Chicken Feed is now available in select farm supply, pet, mass merchandiser, and grocery retailers nationwide, including tractor supply. Pick up a bag for your backyard flock today. 
Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at idealpoultry.com. That's idealpoultry.com. I'm about to say something that may shock you. There's a chance the mealworm treats you're feeding your chickens are doing them more harm than good. Most of the mealworms sold in the U.S. are hollow and empty because of how they're processed, leaving them with little or no nutritional value. The problem is chickens love healthy insects like mealworms, but there hasn't been a way to get access to them in large quantities. Until now. The only mealworm company I endorse is The Honest Worm because of the way they raise and process their mealworms. Now, they've set aside some bags only for my listeners to try for free. Just cover the cost of shipping and handling. Head on over to freemealworms.com. That's freemealworms.com. If you don't see sold out at the top of the page, that means there's still some bags left, but only for a limited time. Go to freemealworms.com and get your free bag today. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer here to tell you that if you have backyard poultry, nothing is more important than making sure your feathered friends are safe from infectious poultry diseases. Learn the simple steps to keep your birds healthy by visiting this website, healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. That's healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. A message from the USDA. And don't forget to enter our current contest that ends tonight at midnight, sponsored by Stromberg's Chickens. I'll tell you about the contest in just a minute. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at StrombergsChickens.com. That's StrombergsChickens.com. This looks like a job for Super Chicken. You get the super sauce, I'll don my super suit. All righty, let me quickly tell you about the contest we have. It's been going on all week. It ends tonight at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and it is sponsored by our good friends at StrombergsChickens.com. And all you have to do is head over to their website, StrombergsChickens.com, and go to their online store, pick out an item that you would most likely use, that $50 gift certificate on, and then come over to our Facebook page and any of the most recent posts that we've made and post the item number of the product you would most likely purchase with your gift certificate and a short description. And you are entered. We'll choose a random winner 
um, I guess tonight after midnight or tomorrow first thing in the morning. And then tomorrow when we do our Facebook Live uh, and update our meat birds, that's when we will announce the winner. I'll also post the winner on our Facebook page as well. So thanks for staying with us. We're talking about illness and disease to watch for when raising meat birds with Dr. Maurice Pateski. And great information so far, and it is fits right into our subject matter over the last two, three weeks and, and going forward. So uh, we'll bring him back live now, and uh, we'll continue. Great. Um, so a couple things I wanted to kind of point out that are a little maybe less likely to happen, but I think uh, for backyards, a oh. little less likely to happen in the commercial world, but for backyards might also be uh, potentially a little more likely to have to happen. Um, so one of the things we want to think about is, um, again, understanding what normal and abnormal looks like. Take some time, and uh, it's hard to do over the radio, obviously. Um, but you can have, <coughs> excuse me, especially when you have cool nights, and you're storing your feed um, in a place where moisture can get into your feed, um, you can have mycotoxin production in your feed. And one of the ways you would kind of visualize that eventually um, is you would start seeing uh, fatty liver. So livers normally have this kind of dark, almost like copper type mm -hmm. color, like a darker copper color. Um, and then when you have a fatty liver, um, it can have like a whitish kind of uh, pale color. Um, so one of the reasons you can have fatty liver is, is from mycotoxin um, production. Um, and one of the things you might notice, you might notice a lot, a lot of bruising in birds. Um, so if livers aren't working correctly, then you have a lower resistance to bruising. Um, so all that could be related to uh, mycotoxin production from mold growth um, in feed. So um, it's important to think about that um, uh, we store our feed in a, in a dry um, cool, not hot um, space, but um, it's really important to keep the feed dry. And, and the other thing is, um, I know sometimes we, we you know, we want to get a, a good deal on feed and we get, you know, three, four, five, six months of feed in advance. Um, that's, that's kind of a recipe for a potential disaster uh, if you're not storing it um, properly. So um, I'd say ideally you don't want to store feed longer than a, than a couple months. Um, so you can also have issues from ectoparasites. Um, so with lice and mites, um, you can start having some uh, skin issues, and, and these are more aesthetic, um, but uh, definitely something to kind of uh, keep an eye on. And uh, something I'll also commonly see in, in backyarders, you'll have uh, synoviitis, which is just a fancy term for a joint infection. Um, so when you feel like any type of like over the hock, which is the ankle um, and the knees, um, you'll, you'll, you'll definitely see sometimes you'll feel uh, just an enlargement, and you can almost even compare the two hocks, those two ankles to each other. And uh, if you feel enough of them, you'll start saying, okay, something, something's in there, it's under pressure, and that can typically be um, bacteria, uh, specifically mycoplasma and uh, staphylococcus, but can also be E. coli. Um, so those are things to kind of also uh, keep your eye on. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is, um, you know, in general, um, condemnations are typically associated with disease. So when, when you do see things um, that are abnormal, um, it, there is typically it's related to some kind of infectious um, disease, sometimes non-infectious if we're dealing, um, well, typically infectious disease. Um, and, and it's really important for us to kind of, again, connect the dots back to, to our uh, husbandry and management to see what we could do better. Um, sometimes it's, it's related to things that we... 
um, just haven't done a good job of in a flock because it's winter time, for example. We weren't able to get good ventilation. Uh, sometimes it can be related to vaccinations. Um, you know, in, in the um, backyard world, my, my two, my, my only vaccine that I insist on 100% of the time is Merrick's. Um, after mm-hmm. that, everything's mm-hmm. kind of up for debate. Um, so sometimes you have to expand your your, your knowledge and, and usage of vaccines. Um, that being said, I, I sometimes view vaccines as kind of a, a Band-Aid um, in the sense that I think we uh, have a tendency to expect vaccines to be perfect. Um, so the reality is, is that they're, they're good and they're a great tool to incorporate into our um, disease management program, but um, by no means are they just by themselves going to protect our chickens from uh, getting a, a, a disease. So it's really important that we, if we do, our, if we are going to consider a vaccine, because vaccines for E. coli, for example, um, that we, we, we also incorporate, regardless of whether we vaccinate or not, we always incorporate good management and good biosecurity. And I know we talk about that a lot, and you do a great job of always making that point. Um, and, and vaccines do have a place in, uh, in food safety and in, um, in poultry production. I very strongly believe that, but I think sometimes uh, we have a tendency to kind of expect too much of the vaccines as far as their ability to prevent disease. Um, with, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a five, and I guess commercial growers are growing these birds out maybe in five weeks, but in a five, six, seven-week time period to slaughter, is there any benefit to vaccinate if we're looking at just seven weeks before processing and, and, and say, these faster-growing meat birds? I mean, they yeah. probably vaccinate for some things, but I think it's a logical question. In seven weeks, I'm going to butcher them anyway. Yep, no, that's a, that's a great question. So for the most part, the, the broiler industry will not vaccinate, um, uh, aside from, from Merrick's disease for the most part, because that gets done in OVO. Um, at the commercial mm-hmm. level. Um, for the most part, you're yeah. absolutely right. They will not uh, vaccinate against other diseases unless there's something specifically going on. Now, they will okay. also yeah. do, they'll vaccinate the uh, the parent flock um, because you can get maternal antibodies into the chicks. And those maternal antibodies typically last mm-hmm. around three weeks. So here's where you have your calculation. So if you have the you know, the, the broilers, those birds that in the commercial world are growing, you know, 40, 50 days, it's the, it doesn't usually economically pencil out to vaccinate them for, for very many diseases. Um, but it does make a lot of sense to, to vaccinate the parent flock um, because they're producing all the chicks that are going to be, uh, they're going to be raised for 50 days. And you've got this, this, this space. So usually when the birds are hatched, they've got, um, maternal antibodies. They've got the antibodies from their from their mom for three weeks to protect them against infectious bronchitis or mycoplasma or whatever it be. Um, but then they've got this 20 or 30 day period there, um, 20 day period there where they're not they don't really have any protection. Um, so you have to decide if you're going to try to kind of boost them or give them a give them an additional vaccine. And and, and usually most companies. Um, we'll make that decision um, based upon are they seeing any diseases in, in their flock. On the layer side, it's a lot different. Layer side, because those birds are living, you know, 60, 70, 80 weeks, um, you'll vaccinate regardless because it's, you've, mm-hmm. you've, you're investing 80 weeks into that bird. And if you have them, have, have them become diseased at 20 or 30 or 40 weeks, then you've lost, you know, your next 40 weeks of those, of those birds. And the reality is, is that when you do order 
birds from genetics companies, um, if if you can't order them, you can't just say, well, we'll, we'll start over again. It doesn't doesn't really work that way. You have to order them in many cases months and sometimes even years ahead of, ahead of uh, in in advance. Um, and I've got awesome. I've got one final question um, that came into my mind, and then and then we'll wrap it up. The um, like with the slow growers that uh, that just get so big so fast and they just have a tendency to just lay there. Not a whole lot of movement, getting over the water, getting over the food or food and then just laying there. Versus giving those meat birds same same the fast growing ones a little bit bigger run and more room to move around. We know they're just so big and fat they'll just they won't even if they're given the opportunity. But do we see um, I guess at the end of the day, my question is, if you give a meat bird more room to run around, walk around, forage, things like that, would then it end up being maybe the meat being tougher than one that just sits there? Because I know in, in hog raising, um, and we've got hogs here on our homestead, and I've done general research on that, that you know a, a smaller pen might end up meaning better meat because they're not getting all that exercise and then getting that tough meat and building that muscle. But, I mean, I, and meat and muscle, you know, again. But so um, I guess that's my question. Would would that meat end up, at the end of the day, maybe being better meat by that bird just <laughs> sitting there versus having something more that's a lot more active and a slower-growing uh, bird that you're raising for meat? Yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that the two answers I would say is I think the commercial poultry industry usually thinks about feed conversion ratio. So they think about, okay, what's the best right. way to lower our feed conversion <laughs> ratio? Because we want to put the uh -huh. minimum amount of food in and get the maximum amount of eggs uh -huh. or meat out of that bird. So in order to lower mm -hmm. feed conversion ratio, the, the easiest way to do it is to not allow those birds to have as much movement. And the other benefit of that, mm -hmm. if, if you consider the first benefit, the other benefit of that is then those um, those birds don't get hurt as much, right? I mean, if if I put a little kid, if I put my three kids in a tiny little room, they they can't really generate that much speed to to slam into each other and 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 bump and bruise each other, right? It doesn't mean they're going to have a great quality of life there, but they're not going to get hurt and they're not going to you know so so that that that's one reality. Now the other thing I'd say to your point is you know when you when you, especially around Thanksgiving time, people get really into some of these uh, artisanal breeds now. Um, and those uh -huh. breeds you cannot raise in a um, you know kind of confined area. They're just that's just not their their behavior wouldn't allow that. Um, and people enjoy the way that that meat tastes more than you know they they enjoy the way the you know kind of the the quote unquote generic turkey taste, which is maybe raised in 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 a, in a, in a smaller in a smaller space inside a barn. Um, so, you know, there's two kind of variables there. Is it the genetics of the breed or is it like that those birds got to be kind of out and about and they're eating all kinds of weird stuff and grasses and stuff like that? It's probably a little of both. Um, but it's an interesting question. I know, you know, you look at veal and, you know, one of the things that apparently makes veal so, so delicious for people is that it's, they're, they're in these crates and they're, they're not allowed to move very much. So, um, mm -hmm. I guess that makes the meat, you know, somewhat tender. Um, but it's, 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 I, I don't know if people thought about that per se, like on chickens and turkeys, um, would, mm -hmm. would the same would, would hold true for that. Um, but it's, it's, I guess that would be a question for a food scientist more than a, than a veterinarian, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> no, I understand. Absolutely. Just, it popped into my mind while we were talking about it. All right, we'll wrap it up. Anything else that, uh, came to your mind? Like, Ooh, I meant to talk about this or that, or anything you want to convey before we let you go? 
Um, no, I mean, the only other thing I wanted to point out really quickly is, is after you're done with processing, um, it's really important to, um, you know, if you can use stainless steel for, for all your, your processing, it's really mm -hmm. easy to clean. And then make sure you clean your um, um, your coop out also. In, in a perfect world, you can have, you know, 10 to 15 days of downtime where you don't have any um, birds in, the, in those coop areas after you clean and disinfect it. That's a great way to kind of let time and sun and all those things kind of um, eliminate and reduce a lot of the pathogens. Um, so if you can do that, those are those are great things to prevent, you know, your to, to help uh, protect your next flock. Okay. And so, because uh, we'll be doing that, because we're going to raise some more meat, bir meat birds after this. Again, small scale, probably another eight to ten birds, and we'll probably do a, a dual purpose or a slower grower, and so we can compare, and the folks following us can compare and get that idea. So about two weeks downtime with the coop, and then we can um, um, obviously clean the coop, and we'll probably use some oxine uh, in the coop as well and get it good and disinfected. And, of course, the sunshine, like I said, sun, getting the sun and, and, and whatnot in through there as best we can. And then, of course, uh, the day before, get, get the new bedding back in there. And so that's a great tip, too, we'll utilize when we go uh, – here in probably a couple of months when we get done with this set of meat birds, these fast growers, and go to something a little bit slower so we can uh, document the comparison. So, uh, well, Doc, thank you very much for coming on today. I learned a lot. I know our listeners learned a lot. We'll refer to this show over the next eight weeks as we grow these meat birds that are folks that kind of tune in a little late. And, oh, I was interested in this. We'll say, hey, well, here's a couple of shows you can uh, tune into and learn all about it. So thank you very much for tuning, uh, coming on today. And we'll uh, we'll see you next month with another great topic. You take care of yourself. Great, you too. Thanks for having me again. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on. And again, folks, that's Dr. Maurice Pateski with UC Davis. He also writes for Chicken Whisper Magazine, contributor to the came out in December, and just a really terrific resource. We're so glad to have him on our team of experts that we can reach out to when we have questions. So, Dr. Maurice Pateski, again, thank you for coming on. Uh, don't forget about the Strombergs Chickens uh, com contest, fifty dollars gift certificate, and a really cool retro design chicken keeping T-shirt. You can see that T-shirt at their website as well. We told you how to enter earlier. And then uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter as well. And again, every day about 1 to 2 p.m., we're going to be doing a Facebook Live. If you want to follow us with uh, our brooder and our meat birds over the next uh, seven weeks and see how that all pans out. I know we've got a lot of interest on that. So I'm trying to see next week. Oh, yeah, next Thursday, the 19th, we'll welcome back um, – Dr. Bridget McRae, Ph.D. It's going to be a great show. Last year at this time, uh, I went out to Alabama, and we did an on-site radio broadcast, and, we did a, and I went to um, a home of a young lady with 4-H that had the best eggs in the state. It's where... Um, uh, 4-H kids participate, and, and, and they take their eggs, they send them all to, to, to Dr. McRae at Auburn University, and they grade them, and they rate them, and everything, measure them. They're measuring how high the albumin is, and, and the whole, everything. It's amazing. And uh, this young lady was ended up being the winner, uh, the one winner in the state 
of everybody that participated in the contest, and uh, she had the best eggs in the state. And I'm not sure how old, uh, I don't know last year, I think it was a middle school student, maybe fifth grade, which I think uh, is the last part of elementary, but probably fifth, sixth, seventh uh, grade, I'm, I'm going to guess, uh, maybe older. We'll see. I haven't got a lot of information other than what we're doing next Thursday with Dr. McCray. So we're going to interview her. We're going to talk about her, her flock, and uh, the awards and the testing that went into these eggs. Dr. McCray will be on along with this young lady who won the best eggs in Alabama. Uh, so that's going to be a fun show next Thursday, July 19th, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to, forget to visit us online at chickenwhisperer.com, and you can go and subscribe to the digital edition of Chicken Whisperer Magazine. We'll see you next week right here on Blog Talk Radio. Love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 